Phineas is making his voice heard. If you care about these issues enough, here is a direct and fast way to articulate that. Now, why are you voting? And how are you going to make sure your vote is counted? There are lots of questions this year, like how to register, vote by mail, and how to safely vote in person. That's why Facebook created the Voting Information Center. Get information from election authorities and experts at facebook.com slash voting info center. And don't miss the new podcast from iHeartRadio and Facebook called Why I'm Voting. iHeartRadio's Why I'm Voting Countdown to Election Day. Your vote is your voice. Quibi is a new streaming service with fresh original stories that unfold in minutes. With over 100 spooky new episodes for Halloween, they've got the blood-curdling screams to last you every day this October. Their Quick Bites of Fright collection is made for our fans. They've got classic murder mysteries, but also have fun new concepts that explore true crime in the worlds of home renovation and even fashion. Download Quibi in the App Store today to get streaming. That's Quibi, spelled Q-U-I-B-I. This episode includes discussion of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. If you will place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand, and please repeat after me, I do solemnly swear. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant guilty of the crime. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. We all took the same oath of office. We are all bound by that common commitment to support and defend the Constitution, to bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and to faithfully discharge the duties of our office. Do you solemnly swear or affirm that the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? From Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio, this is Sworn. I'm your host, Philip Holloway. Twenty-five years ago, I heard a story about a 21-year-old woman on death row in Chicago. She was sentenced to death on a plea bargain. This made no sense to me, how someone could be sentenced to death on a plea bargain. So I actually set up to meet with her on death row. She said that's what her lawyer told her to do, to plea out, and that was her best chances of getting a good result. She said, and I'm innocent. I went back, told my students about it, said, you know, there's this woman on death row. She said she's innocent. She's got an execution date. We worked on her case sitting in my kitchen and going out to the crime scene and tracking down witnesses. After I got her death sentence reversed, I decided that's what I wanted to do with my life. I have her picture. I'm looking at it right now on my wall. Just sitting on death row 25 years ago and looking at a kid, basically, who went through the system without any assistance, who didn't get a trial, didn't get any investigation, was so shocking to me that that could happen in the United States of America, that it just changed my entire life. And I always say there's two naive positions. One naive position is that everyone in prison is innocent. The other naive position is everyone in prison is guilty. The truth is most people in prison are guilty. And we're trying to figure out, you know, where does that line end of most? 30 years ago, I was sworn in as a deputy sheriff in South Georgia. In 1996, I passed the bar exam. I've been a prosecutor. I've been defense counsel. And I've even worn a judge's robe. 
I've seen just about every side of the American legal system that there is to see. Last season on this show, we looked at just some of the criminal cases that caught my attention and we highlighted a few of the issues in the system that we thought were important. Now we're taking a new approach. We're tackling the problems that run rampant in our legal system, the roadblocks, the corruption, loopholes, things that cause innocent people to wind up behind bars. We're taking a good hard look at the criminal justice system head on this season on Sworn. Welcome back. As I mentioned at the beginning, things are a little different this season. As a practicing criminal lawyer, former peace officer, and former prosecutor, I deal with the inner workings of the criminal justice system on a daily basis. I see how complicated and heartbreaking it can be, and I know how many people are caught unawares in horrible circumstances. Over the course of this season, we're going to look at just some of these high-stakes situations, the ones that I see all the time, And we're going to hear from people who have had to live with the consequences. This show is dedicated to justice, what justice looks like and how to find justice. We were able to work closely with people across the country who are fighting for a more perfect system. One of those people is Justin Brooks, who was the voice at the beginning of the episode. Justin serves as the current director of the California Innocence Project, and you'll be hearing from him throughout the season. But first, I want to share with you a story of a man who was wrongfully convicted based on evidence that many juries view as the gold standard. Eyewitness testimony. This man spent nine years in prison while the perpetrator remains free. When it comes to shedding some light on this nightmare that so many of us unfortunately share, I'm a walking book. The two most common contributing factors of wrongful convictions are witness misidentification and misapplication of forensic science. And I was a victim of both of them. My name is Joe Diaz. I am 55 years old. I work in the high tech field. I'm a father of four, married to a wonderful woman. As Joe mentioned, when it comes to his story, he's an open book. So we asked him to start at the beginning. I'm sitting in a college class and two plainclothes gentlemen walk up to the professor with a note. Professor walks over to my desk. They walk me outside. Mind you, this was May 1984. Back then, there was a a popular show called Hidden Camera. I had a lot of friends who were, you know, pranksters. I figured this is this is a joke of some some kind. I walk outside. And one of the investigators tells the other one, ah, he looks like a jackrabbit, may want to handcuff him. So they told me to turn around and they handcuffed me. That's when I realized, okay, this is not a joke. They took me down to the police station, interrogated me for a few hours, wanting to know where I was on certain days and if I knew of a certain school in a certain part of town. And I didn't. But nevertheless, they interrogated me for a long time and wanted to know who I knew who owned a Volkswagen van. I said, I don't have the slightest idea. They wouldn't tell me why they were interrogating me. You're talking about 1984. It was hours that they interrogated me. 
It's been so long, I don't recall when they read me my rights, but you know, I spoke to them. Biggest mistake I ever made in my life. But again, I was a 20 year old ignorant individual, had nothing to hide. So I was willing to talk to them because I hadn't done anything wrong. When they finally decided to take me over to the county jail, that's when they told me that I was being charged with two sexual assaults. They took me over to the jailhouse and I didn't see freedom again for another nine years. As I listened to his story, one of the things that I could not wrap my head around was why Joe got picked up in the first place. There were some police officers who knew my family and me from the neighborhood. You know, we were hoodlums. We weren't necessarily law-abiding citizens that you could just walk by and yell at and we would not react. We would throw rocks, mud, fruit, whatever was in our vicinity at the cops and run off. These cops knew my brothers and I, and they knew that we weren't the uh, little saints. So one of these cops who, who knew me claims that when he saw the sketch of, of the assailant that they were looking for, that I sort of resembled them. So he put me in the, in the lineup. From a law enforcement standpoint, taking Joe into custody in a college classroom kind of makes a lot of sense. It's a contained environment. The suspect is unlikely to escape. Most college classrooms I've been in only have one way in and one way out. As for pointing him out in the first place, I'm not a fan of going on police sketches to begin an investigation. There's just so much subjectivity first in a witness remembering what they saw, and secondly, in how a sketch artist will interpret what the witness is trying to say. I did kind of resemble the guy. I did have short hair just like the guy. I had a mustache at the time. The guy didn't have a mustache in the uh, in the sketch, but he sort of resembled me, you know, because the nose was kind of wide and everything. That was for one of the two charges. The other guy had long, long hair, which I can't grow because my hair is curly. And he had a real skinny nose, which I don't have. So the two composites could not have been any more different. They had shown both of those victims lineups, photo lineups in the past, and neither of them could identify the, the attacker. Once this officer mentioned that I look like one of those composites, supposedly they went back to the two victims and they put my picture in the photo lineup and that they both picked me out. On the second woman who was attacked, these two joggers came by and they saw her putting her clothes back on and asked her, hey, are you okay? She says, that guy just attacked me. He ran that way. They chased the guy down, but the guy got away. But the guy dropped a slipper and he gets away in this Volkswagen van again. If I'm not mistaken, they looked at the photo lineup and they both picked me out or one of them did. And so then one of them came to court and said, yes, that's him right there. The first victim, the guy never was never able to attack her. He took her to the back of the school and then somebody showed up with him. So he ran off. The second guy was able to attack the second victim. And in her panties, they found some A-blood. Now, she and her husband were both A-blood. I'm O. That should have been enough right there to say, we don't even need to go to trial. They didn't have DNA testing, but as Joe mentioned, they did have blood typing. Blood typing that didn't match Joe with the perpetrator. So I guess in my professional opinion, I'm going to have to agree with Joe on this one. I think the trial should have stopped there. During the trial, they brought that same forensics expert who works for the county. They brought him in to testify. And once he said, yes, I found this A plus one minus, 
that definitely excludes the suspect. It could not have been him. He's old blood. And the district attorney left, kept him on the stand for two days straight until they were able to batter him enough so that he would change his story and say, okay, the evidence was weak and inconclusive. Well, how could it be conclusive one day and inconclusive? You know, on paper, it's conclusive. But after interrogation, he changes it, that it was inconclusive. Joe's got a great question there, and it's one that we'll explore later in the season. Trial, I believe, was a week or two. It was a nightmare. To me, it was just a big, abstract sporting competition, you know, a verbal joust between attorneys to see who can act out the best, my attorney versus the district attorney. A lot of the times, trials can feel like that, and while it's generally best to keep relationships between defense attorneys and prosecutors friendly and professional, sometimes they can turn adversarial. There's a lot at stake, and it's not uncommon for emotions or egos to run high. And my attorney would not let me take the stand. I'm like, I need to take the stand. I need to speak up for myself. I don't have anything to hide. And he's like, no, you look angry. I look angry. That's an understatement. What do you mean I look angry? What if the roles were reversed? If you were sitting in my seat, would you not be angry? Of course I'm angry. You know, I was 20 years old. I had to defer. He's the one who's gone to law school. I didn't know any different. I said, okay, well, I won't take the stand. And I didn't take the stand. To this day, I regret not insisting that I take the stand. I can understand Joe's frustration here, but in my experience... Most defendants don't take the stand, but it's always a tough call. I've seen cases myself that were won or lost by a defendant's own testimony. As for looking angry, I certainly don't mind a little righteous indignation. In fact, there's a place for it in the theater that is a criminal courtroom. But we don't want the jury to feel intimidated and we don't want them to feel threatened. I always consider how my client will look and how they will sound on the stand, especially during cross-examination. It's because of that opportunity for cross-examination that the conventional wisdom says defendants should stay off the stand and maintain and exercise their right to remain silent. Whether or not a defendant chooses to testify is always a decision for the defendant and for the defendant alone after consulting with counsel. Judges must tell juries that defendants have a right not to testify, and if they elect not to testify, that the jury is not to hold that against the defendant in any way, shape, or form. Merely exercising your constitutional right to remain silent is not the same thing as an admission of guilt, and juries are told that they cannot treat it as such. When's the last time you got rewarded for brushing your teeth? With Quip's new smart electric toothbrush, good habits can earn you great perks like free products, gift cards, and more. The Quip smart toothbrush for adults and kids connects to the Quip app with Bluetooth. You can track when and how well you brush and get tips to improve your habits. You can also earn points for daily brushing and bonus points for completing challenges. Plus, you'll get your brush head, toothpaste, and floss refills delivered starting at only $5, and shipping is free. How smart is that? Join over 5 million mouths who use Quip and save hundreds compared to other Bluetooth brushes when you get a Quip smart toothbrush for just $45. Start getting rewards for brushing your teeth today. 
Go to getquip.com slash sworn right now to get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash sworn. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash sworn. Quip, better oral health made simple and rewarding. Let's imagine a world where no one ever cuts corners. Potato chip bags are filled to the top or that car in front of you at the stoplight notices when it turns green. Well, a place like this exists where square pizzas are placed into square boxes and wings come in jumbo size. We're talking about Lido Pizza with an all-new online ordering website for easy ordering. Lido Pizza is square because Lido Pizza never cuts corners. Check it out at LidoPizza.com. When Joe started explaining the eyewitness testimony in this case, I knew we had to bring in an expert. I have admired Dr. Elizabeth Loftus for a very long time. She is one of my personal heroes in the criminal justice system. She is an expert in human memory and the problems with eyewitness testimony. So I am a professor at the University of California, Irvine. I trained as a psychologist, an experimental psychologist, and my specialty is human memory. And within the study of human memory, I have focused on the problems of false memories or distorted memories, in, in some sense, when memory goes awry. What we know in the field of psychology is that memory does not work like a recording device. You don't just record the event and play it back later. In fact, the process is much more complex what we are doing when we remember something is we are often taking bits and pieces of experience and constructing what feels like a memory. So psychologists talk about memory as being a constructive or reconstructive process rather than a kind of video recording process. The term, the malleability of memory, is one that refers to the idea that memory is changeable, that it can be influenced by all kinds of things, particularly by things that happen after some critical event is completely over. In the context of a criminal trial, memory comes into play quite often. So often a key issue is who committed the crime. And often when the key issue is who committed the crime, there is some witness or victim who might be making an identification. Somebody that the victim or witness says was present at the crime, committed the crime, or cooperated in committing the crime in some way. That witness may be tested in a number of ways, maybe looking at photographs, maybe going to a lineup. And all of these activities involve, involve memory. And then, of course, in other situations, Key witnesses are remembering things other than who committed the crime. They, they have to remember things like what was the color of the getaway car, or, or maybe it's a bar fight and who's the first person who, who threw the first punch. These are also expressions of memory. So the accuracy of these kinds of accounts is crucial to the resolution of a case. 
when investigating the facts of a particular case, it's pretty important to look at whether there are opportunities where witnesses may have been influenced, may have had their memories tampered with, even inadvertently. This happens when witnesses talk with one another after some crime is over. It happens when people are interrogated. Maybe they're interrogated by an investigator who has a hypothesis or an agenda and communicates information to the witness, even inadvertently. They can supply information and contaminate the memory. Say a witness sees a, a kind of high publicity event and then looks at media coverage uh, and other witnesses or news anchors or journalists are talking about the event. There's another opportunity for new information to enter the consciousness of uh, a witness to a critical case that's going to make its way into a courtroom and to cause a change in that memory. You know, I had one case where the officer tried to elicit an identification. The eyewitness said, no, I don't really recognize the perpetrator in this set of photos you're showing me. And the officer said, I see your eyes drifting down to number six. What's going on here? Well, you can see in this example that the officer has this idea that it's number six, thinks he saw the eyewitness glance down there and he, in the process, secured an identification of number six. That's the kind of more subtle suggestion that that I've actually seen happen in a case I was working on. I asked Dr. Loftus what kinds of warning signs in a case would indicate to her that the eyewitness testimony might be faulty. When it's been a very, very long period of time between the supposed crime and, and the person reporting a memory, you don't need a PhD to know that memory fades over time, but what's a little bit less a matter of common sense is as that memory is fading over these long period of time, it becomes more and more vulnerable to contamination or, or suggestion. So when I, when I hear people coming forward and saying, you know, such and such happened 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago, whatever, that sets off an alarm. So the passage of time or the presence of suggestive information, that, that's just a couple of factors, but you need to worry about a lot of other things. For example, is it an identification that involves a cross-race identification? Do you have a stranger of, of one race trying to identify somebody of a different race who is a stranger, not a, a friend? We make more mistakes when we make those cross-race identifications than same-race ones. The cross-race identification problem, you know, has been at the root of, of a number of these wrongful convictions. And it, it's even happened in rape cases, so people are pretty close together. Justin Brooks, the director and co-founder of the California Innocence Project, who you heard from at the very beginning of this episode, spoke with us about how common incorrect eyewitness testimony actually is in exoneration cases like that of Joe Diaz. So, first of all, there's sort of the global causes of wrongful conviction. And, you know, I put that in the category of not having resources. You know, poor people get wrongfully convicted more than rich people. 
And we know that there's racial aspects to that. And we know that there's problems with the defense and investigation. But what we now know is more about the actual specifics. And it's sort of like when there's a plane crash, we want to study the plane crash to see why it went down. Now we're able to study the 2,000 cases of documented wrongful conviction in America. And it's revealed some interesting things. First of all, one of the leading causes is bad identification. And we now know that people aren't that good at identifying people. Yet, we've allowed for centuries people to be convicted on a lone witness's testimony of, that's the person I saw commit the crime. There's many reasons for this. It starts with just faulty memory, people having trouble with memory. But we've learned it, it also comes from poor identification procedures. It comes from all kinds of ways people's memories are contaminated. In California, we've had a huge number of cases where people were wrongfully convicted due to cross-racial identifications. And I'm always talking to lawyers about how to talk to jurors about this, that people just aren't as good at identifying people not of their own race. It starts right from when you're a baby and your brain is processing how to do facial recognition. If everyone around that baby is the same race, for the rest of their life, they will not be that good at cross-racial identification. And it's nothing to do with racism, it's just to do with how our brains develop. So we've now seen, you know, in the initial few hundred DNA exonerations, more than half of them were based on bad identifications at trial. So there's a lot of reasons people are wrongfully convicted. There's some we can really make improvements in, there's others that are always gonna exist so we just have to be cognizant of it, and jurors have to be cognizant of it and be you know, highly skeptical of certain types of evidence. That sounds an awful lot like Joe's case. So I asked him what he thought the biggest factor was in the jury's finding him guilty. Oh, the, the witness identification, there was no doubt about it. If there's one thing that I have learned through all of this is how race comes into play a lot of times and how difficult it is for people of one race to actually identify, have the capacity to identify somebody of another race or the errors that are made in trying to identify somebody of another race. I identified as Hispanic. However, I am a mix. My father's mother was Chinese. His father was Spanish. My mother is half Spanish, half black. I'm multiracial. Hey, believe me, as much as I've been raised with it, Almost every single, I was raised in the hood. I came to this country a refugee. We were poor. We had to live in the poorest of neighborhoods. So you congregate with all the, the poor folk from all over that come in into the country. So I thought I could identify, I can identify people, but I make a gazillion mistakes a lot of times where I'm wrong. As I look back at my case, I realize how fallible we humans are, how fallible our memories and our belief that we could identify folks and especially folks from a different culture. So I get it, you know, I get it. At the time, I'm like, I'm being framed. Why are you guys doing this? You know, at the time, I didn't know what I know now. At the time, I was just up in arms, like, how in the world could this be? There is power. There is so much power in a witness going to court and pointing a finger at a suspect and saying, yes, he or she is the suspect. There is power in that. After the trial concluded, 
the jury was sent back to deliberate. They couldn't come to a verdict. Come Friday afternoon, 4.30, they all wanted to go home. All of a sudden, they had a verdict, and it was guilty. Joe has a good point here, and I think there's something to his idea that his verdict may have been rushed. Most criminal trials seem to fit nicely within one work week. By Friday, of course, everybody is tired. The lawyers are tired. The parties are tired. The judge is tired. This cuts both ways. Because a jury is ready to be done on a Friday doesn't necessarily mean they're going to acquit somebody, and it doesn't mean they're going to convict somebody. In my career as a prosecutor or as defense counsel, if I have a choice, I really don't want a jury deliberating on Friday afternoon if it can be helped. Joe was exonerated after his release. He served nine years of a 15-year sentence, and it wasn't until years later that he was declared innocent by a district attorney's conviction integrity unit one of the strongest tools available in the fight against wrongful incarceration. That team of investigators revisited Joe's case after they realized that the facts of his case fit very closely with a serial rapist that had been committing crimes in that area. 28 additional victims came forward even after Joe was in prison. My first almost six years were spent at Soledad Prison. And I was very fortunate because I went in very angry, very bitter. And a lot of people ask me, well, you know, was it tough in prison? You know, were the guys tough in there? Do you have a lot of fights? Look, I had already grown up in the hood. I come from a family of fighters. My whole family was already raised to be pretty, uh, pretty outlawish. But in all reality, I didn't have to go into prison and try to prove that I'm a man and try to prove that I'm not a sex offender. I just carried my own, myself, as a respectful individual. I respected others, they respected me. But I was fortunate that the prison that I happened to land in was one of the few prisons that had a college program. I had been railroaded, I had been abducted from a college class. As soon as I saw that they had a college program, I signed up. I kept myself busy with that, and I kept myself on the basketball court. Basketball is my passion, that's what I did. I did the best that I could to make sure that I could improve my life to the best of my ability. Because, I mean, my life was not mine anymore. I had succumbed to the fact that I had to survive. I had to survive that nightmare and not do anything stupid. I always knew that I was putting my children first and I knew that I had to do what I had to do. I always had faith. I always had faith. Not in God, per se. I came to the point where I was cursing God. But I had faith in the legal system, and I had this blind faith in just karma that I would be freed someday. And I said, I have to educate myself to the best of my ability. I have to keep my mind clear for my daughters. I have to be there for my daughters. I didn't have a good upbringing, but I said, you know what? The least I can do is be a man for my daughter. And I am so grateful for these professors that were willing to take the drive to teach people, I would have to believe that they believe that these people are redeemable. In the end, Joe was exonerated and given a certificate of innocence in April 2013. This Halloween, 
Quibi puts original horror shows right in your pocket. Now, wherever you are, you can kill time with killer content. Quibi is a new streaming service with fresh original stories that unfold in minutes. With over 100 new episodes of their spookiest shows, they've got the blood-curdling screams to last you every day this October. Their Quick Bites of Fright collection is truly made for our fans. They've got new, fun takes on classic horror and true crime shows. For instance, Murder Unboxed explores outlandish real-life cases. They reveal connections between seemingly random clues like a bottle of brandy, a toaster, and a Born Supremacy DVD. Or, in Last Looks, a true crime thriller narrated by Dakota Fanning, they investigate real-life crimes that have shaken the fashion industry. Download Quibi in the App Store today to start your daily dose of dread. That's Quibi, spelled Q-U-I-B-I. When's the last time you got rewarded for brushing your teeth? With Quip's new smart electric toothbrush, good habits can earn you great perks like free products, gift cards, and more. The Quip smart toothbrush for adults and kids connects to the Quip app with Bluetooth. You can track when and how well you brush and get tips to improve your habits. You can also earn points for daily brushing and bonus points for completing challenges. Plus, you'll get your brush head, toothpaste, and floss refills delivered starting at only $5 and shipping is free. How smart is that? Join over 5 million mouths who use Quip and save hundreds compared to other Bluetooth brushes when you get a Quip smart toothbrush for just $45. Start getting rewards for brushing your teeth today. Go to getquip.com slash sworn right now to get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash sworn. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash sworn. Quip, better oral health made simple and rewarding. As we mentioned, eyewitness testimony is one of the main causes of wrongful conviction in the United States. I wanted to talk with more people about the problems with eyewitness testimony and find out exactly what's being done to try and fix the shortfalls of human memory. This is Judge Jed Rakoff. My name is Jed Rakoff. I'm a federal district judge in what's called the Southern District of New York, which is Manhattan and various counties to the north. I've been a judge since 1996, and I also teach at both Columbia Law School and NYU Law School. Eyewitness identification is among, I think, the most troubling and difficult issues for the system to deal with because the problem is not easily fixed. You can, of course, make better than it is how lineups are presented, what the police say when showing a witness a photo array, and but the single biggest cause of misidentification by eyewitnesses are things embedded deeply in the human psyche. They are things like poor perception and poor memory. One example is what they call merger. At the time of the crime, you only vaguely saw the face of the perpetrator. You were watching from a window. You didn't want to come close because there was a, a weapon involved. 
but you did see the face, but not that perfectly. You're then shown a very good photo array, thanks to computers now, the police can put together excellent photo arrays. You tell the police, I think it, it, it may be this guy, number three, and you study number three and you study all seven of the photo array photos very carefully. And you notice for the first time that he has a distinctive scar on his cheek. By the time you go to testify, which could be weeks or months later, your memory, unbeknownst to you, will have merged those two. So you will now honestly believe, oh, I always saw that he had a scar. Well, how do you remember him? Well, I'll never forget that scar. This is all a trick of your own memory, unconscious. What you're really remembering is the scar that you saw in the photo, right? But your memory now makes you think that you saw it at the time. Perception abilities and our memory abilities are not nearly as good as we think they are. And yet, it's very powerful evidence, and the jury has no reason to disbelieve him because he has no motive to lie. And he's not lying, but he's still mistaken. No one, I think, would say that the solution is to eliminate all eyewitness identifications. That's going too extreme to the other side. There are times when the person who eyewitnesses a crime has a really good view of it and who may be the critical person in identifying the culprit. This is a dilemma. It's one thing when you have, like you have in some forensic sciences, imperfect science that can be made better. Here, the great problem is no one can change human perception ability and human memory ability. There are two solutions that have been proposed. One is to have judges alert the jury and the judge's instructions to the jury about some of the problems with eyewitness identification evidence. The other is to have experts testify about those problems. When the judge says, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, please be careful about eyewitness identification, the study suggests that the juries throw out the eyewitness identification totally there because the message they think they're getting is, I don't believe the eyewitness. Where experts are used, and typically this would be experts on both sides, the study suggests they cancel each other out and they have no effect. For better or worse, very few cases go to trial these days. The real action is with the prosecutors. And I think a great deal more could be done to educate prosecutors to the frailties of human perception and memory that I think would enable them to be fairer and much more acute in their evaluation of different cases. I know from my experience, having worked nearly two decades as a prosecutor, people are genuinely trying to get it right, that they genuinely are trying to get to their best recollection, but that we sometimes are influenced by other factors that impact memory. Jesse Evans is a prosecutor in Georgia. I've worked with him as a prosecutor, and we've been on the other side from one another in various cases over the years. Throughout Jesse's years at the district attorney's office, 
Jesse has noticed some of the real problems that we know exist with eyewitness testimony and in particular with police lineups. Jesse's leading the charge in his office and in the state of Georgia to try and change some procedures to help prevent false identifications. I'm chief assistant district attorney with the Cobb County District Attorney's Office. Specifically, I'm the major crimes prosecutor, so I head up the major crimes unit. We deal mostly with homicide cases. When it comes to the prosecution of a case, there are two things that have to be presented in every criminal prosecution. Otherwise, you're going to have a problem on appeal. And those two things are venue and identification. We as prosecutors in our general trial outlines, no matter what kind of case we have, we'll always have those two things listed in basically bold and caps to make sure that we check those two boxes. You know, identification, we need to start from the broad perspective, is a very important issue within the legal justice system. So there may have been instances in the past where prosecutors and police were relying oh so heavily on that eyewitness identification the fact that person points to somebody, however that may be, and says that's the person that did this. And there are probably a lot of instances we need to, quite frankly, modern day be very careful about where that was the crux of the case against the criminal defendant. You'd be hard pressed these days to find a case that's going to rest solely on that testimony of that person that could, quite frankly, be impacted by a number of other factors that could impact whether this is an actual memory or a case of misidentification. Modern day, we're always trying to find corroboration of that identification. That can be cell phone evidence, that can be geolocation analysis, that can be DNA, that can be other forensics. I was first contacted by a local jurisdiction, Marietta Police Department. They asked me to attend a uh, training and they brought in a former detective from Chicago who was going to talk about sort of new identification procedures that were beginning around the country. And I'll be honest, when they contacted me and said, hey, we're contemplating making a change, I was skeptical. I think those of us in the criminal justice system, particularly on the prosecution side of things, have a healthy skepticism about change. Why are we doing something? Is this a, an issue that's broken? Are we trying to fix something that doesn't need to be fixed? And I'll tell you, after participating in that training and listening to this, I became convinced that there's probably a better way to do identification procedures. The new procedure that is recommended, and in fact, is the default here in Georgia by statute is what we call blind sequential lineups. Rather than looking at all six at the same time, what happens is that a witness is asked to look at photographs individually. One is presented to the witness, then that photo is removed from view, then a second is presented to the witness, so on and so forth until you go through ideally all six of the photographs. That's usually the amount that we use here. The blind component of that is the idea that we try to do it in a method that would allow for the presenter of that photographic lineup to not be involved in the investigation or to not know who the person is. I asked Jesse if he's been able to see any changes or improvements in their work since implementing these new identification policies. It's a really hard thing to gauge in terms of statistics. Instead, what we wanted to do is just gauge sort of the boots on the grounds, the people that I trust, the people that I'm embedded with as the major crimes prosecutor. I went to my homicide detectives and I said, anecdotally, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about the process? Do you feel like you're getting less identifications? And speaking with my detectives that I trust, the anecdotes I was getting back from them was not only do they feel like they weren't getting significantly less identifications, they actually felt better about the identifications they were getting because they felt like the process was more fair. 
There's nobody in the criminal justice system that wants to get it wrong, so to speak. We're all seeking to get it right. We want to get it right. For that reason, while identification testimony can oftentimes be very important because we're all moving towards that goal of getting it right, we want to make sure that it's not the only thing that we're relying on. I can't think of an instance in my 18 and a half year prosecution career where I've tried a case based solely on identification testimony. There's always going to be some corroborating factors there. Otherwise, I'm going to be very concerned about taking that to court. And in fact, our admonition that we give to witnesses and victims before they do this specifically tells them that whether or not they pick somebody out, we're going to continue on in our investigation. And that's an accurate statement. I've been concerned with the problems of eyewitness testimony for quite some time now. So when we started thinking about what we wanted to do with this show for this season and what pitfalls and problems we wanted to talk about and to learn about and to bring to your attention, I knew that eyewitness identification and memory had to be on the list and probably at the top of the list. What I came to find, though, through these interviews with the experts and from hearing stories like Joe's story man, I found that these problems are even deeper and more serious than even I knew. I have seen over and over again just how much weight eyewitness testimony carries with judges and juries once witnesses take the stand. But it's been known for a while in law enforcement that memory isn't always reliable. In fact, I learned about it firsthand back in my days at the police academy in the late 1980s. One day, I guess it was probably 1989, I was in Albany, Georgia at the Regional Police Academy. I was in a classroom with a group of maybe 20 to 25 students. Out of nowhere, someone just busts in the room wearing a ski mask and holding a handgun. This person goes straight up to the teacher and held him up at gunpoint. At the time, none of us were armed, so we all just sat there, stunned. And in about 15 to 20 seconds, the teacher handed over his wallet and keys and and other valuables, and this person in the ski mask just left the room. We all thought we had just witnessed a real, although pretty reckless, robbery of somebody thinking that they could actually hold up the police academy. As it turns out, it was a lesson for us, a lesson in identification. Everyone in the room was asked to write out a description of the person they saw And between the 25 or so students that were there, there were probably 25 different descriptions. They brought the person in and lo and behold, nobody in the room was right. I mean, nobody. Things like what color the person was wearing, those details were wrong. Whether somebody had a hat on, those details were wrong. Very important details that you would think would be hard to miss. And to this day, I think about that exercise at the police academy. I think about just how wrong our panicked human memories are. Even for people trained to identify suspects and to remember clues to a crime. The big takeaway for all of us was, look, we can't rely on this stuff. We can't rely on descriptions. Perceptions alone are not enough to solve cases. It wasn't until law school when I started to learn about the work of Dr. Elizabeth Loftus that I realized the real problems with human memory and how they play into identifications. Not only is eyewitness identification unreliable at best, it's oftentimes just flat out dangerous. And now after 20 some odd years of practicing law for me, 
It's just one of the more frightening aspects of our legal system. There are so many people like Joe who get sent to prison on little other than what an eyewitness tells a jury. And juries love eyewitness testimony. I see it time and time again. Juries and judges hear how confident these witnesses are, even when they're wrong. I've seen victims and witnesses testify in court even before juries and give details that the witness is very certain of, but that are very wrong. And as we've heard from our experts, it's not that they're lying or they're trying to do the wrong thing. Most of the time, they genuinely want to get it right and they think that they are right, just like I genuinely wanted to get it right back in the police academy. It's our brains and our perception that change these details and make false connections that aren't actually there. In fact, just this week while we were recording this episode, I had a hearing in court where a witness was absolutely certain about something that they saw, even though everything else about the case pointed to that not being true. I wanted to address this issue right off the bat because, as Justin Brooks and Judge Rakoff have explained, eyewitness testimony is the number one reason Innocence Project exonerees across the nation are falsely imprisoned. I don't think when it comes to something as serious as prison, we should rely on something as malleable, as changeable as eyewitness testimony and memories as the sole or even the primary evidence in a case. It can be a helpful investigative tool, don't get me wrong, but there are so many problems associated with it that it cannot be the reason that we send someone to jail. I'm glad there are people like Jesse Evans and Jed Rakoff who are out there educating police and lawyers and juries on the problems associated with eyewitness testimony. I'm glad there are people like Dr. Loftus who can go into court as an expert and explain this stuff to juries to prevent more wrongful imprisonments. And I know that in my own life, I take a good hard look at the things that I think I might know to be true based on my own perceptions. Maybe it's details that I think I'm certain that I remember. I'm thinking about these things more critically because I don't want to make any important decision or even an accusation based on what might be faulty memory. If you have a story about a faulty memory or an unreliable eyewitness, we want to hear from you about it. Give us a call at 404-410-0441. Next time on Sworn. He set it up, making sure that all white jury was selected. It was like from there, it was just an uphill battle. And I tell people all the time, if it had been an all Chinese jury and it would have been a Chinese victim, are all Mexican jury and the Mexican victim. What are the odds? The odds are totally stacked against you. Fact after fact after fact was brought out. The hair samples didn't match, but it didn't make any difference because there's that, that one dramatic moment when it says the person that committed the crime in this courtroom today. And they turn around and a tear coming down their cheek and they point directly at me and say, he's the one. Sworn is a production of Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. Our lead producer is Christina Dana. Executive producers are Payne Lindsay and Donald Albright for Tenderfoot TV, Matt Frederick and Alex Williams for iHeartRadio, and myself, Philip Holloway. Additional production by Trevor Young, Mason Lindsay, 
Mike Rooney, Jamie Albright, and Hallie Beadall. Original music and sound design by Makeup and Vanity Set. Our theme song is Blood in the Water by Layup. Show art and design is by Trevor Eiler. Editing by Christina Dana. Mixing and mastering by Mike Rooney and Cooper Skinner. Special thanks to the team at iHeartRadio. From UTA, Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer. Ryan Nord and Matthew Papa from The Nord Group. Beck Media and Marketing and Station 16. I'd also like to extend a very personal and special thanks to all of our contributors and guests who have helped to make all of these episodes possible. You can find Sworn on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sworn Podcast. And follow me, your host, Philip Holloway, on Twitter at PhilHollowayESQ. Our website is SwornPodcast.com, and you can check out other Tenderfoot TV podcasts at www.tenderfoot.tv. If you have questions or comments, you can email us at sworn at tenderfoot.tv or leave us a voicemail at 404-410-0441. As always, thanks for listening. And then I noticed you were using the word convict instead of the word inmate. Can you explain why you're doing that? (laughs) I'm conscious about the differentiation. In prison, I would consider an inmate those men who carry themselves in a manner in which they try to curry favor with the guards, where they will do whatever staff wants of them at the expense of another man. A convict is a man who carries his own, excuse the vulgarity, carries his own nutsack. He doesn't need a gang of individuals to help him walk the prison. He doesn't need a guard to give him an extra pillow or whatever stupid freebies those guys would get. I detest any man that's already sitting in prison currying favor with staff at the expense of another man. Quibi is a new streaming service with fresh original stories that unfold in minutes. With over 100 spooky new episodes for Halloween, they've got the blood-curdling screams to last you every day this October. Their Quick Bites of Fright collection is made for our fans. They've got classic murder mysteries, but also have fun new concepts that explore true crime in the worlds of home renovation and even fashion. Download Quibi in the App Store today to get streaming. That's Quibi, spelled Q-U-I-B-I. I want to tell you all about a new show, Hellstrom, the Hulu original horror series. Hellstrom was produced by Marvel Television and is based on characters from the Marvel comics. Right in time for Halloween, it's a mature, suspenseful, mysterious, scary, action-packed series. It's the story of two broken children who were estranged and raised separately, becoming two very different people. All episodes of Hellstrom are streaming now only on Hulu.